Welcome to episode 815 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Radio team, welcome along to episode 815 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Iles. How you going, mate? Pretty good, Bevan. Got the shoes off? Shoes off. Rainy day and Christchurch day. So you, you didn't bike up? I did not bike up. No. Yeah. Bit of feedback for both of us as well. Got Ooh. last night. Oh, what's that from? Was it uh, Holy Hammer? No, it wasn't. Gail Harvey Hayward. What'd she uh, say? She was saying, I've been yawning on the show. <laughs> and oh, it's, apparently it's really you obvious. Have been. Yep. So today's challenge is not to yawn and not to pass it on to you. Yeah, if it's ever, if it happens, it's always your fault. Exactly. Our talk is proudly brought to you by our awesome patrons. We've got Alex, Master Blaster Paul, Chris, Jetstream, Doherty, and we've got Guy Around the World Whitby. Now, in this week's show, we've got some news. We've got a hot topic of the week. We're kind of doing one of our Legends interviews. We are. We are going to talk to Pete Jacobs, Ironman Hawaii winner, also been on the podium in Hawaii, won other big races, but when you win Hawaii, no matter what else you've done, you're a legend. Yeah, far out, yeah. Not many have done it. Not many have done it in the history of humanity. Uh, then we've got one of the week questions and answers at the end. Okay, we, we did have a few, it's kind of quiet time in the year right now, isn't it? It's kind of the in-between, the in-between. It's building. Got some action happening in the next couple of weeks, so, but we've, we had a bit at the weekend. So we had a couple of halves. So we had the Lanzarote 70.3. And we had some really good racing on the female side. Cat uh, Matthews is just improving all the time. Absolutely spanked it Jeez. on the bike. Uh, rode a two twenty seven compared to all the other females, which were sort of two thirty three, two thirty four, and and above. Uh, and then backed it up with a one seventeen fifty four to beat the um, reigning world champion by uh, Ironman world champion Annie Haug um, by nearly four minutes, three and a half minutes. Is it Annie or Anne? Uh, it's Anne, but she gets called Annie a lot. Okay. So awesome performance by Cat Matthews. Yeah, it's it's a Dominant performance. And she's just an unassuming athlete, <laughs> you know. She, we've interviewed her a couple of times and she's kind of feels like an accidental athlete. Doesn't she, I kind of get the sense she's still got a bit of imposter syndrome, probably doesn't feel like she really belongs there, but she's had some awesome performances. Uh, so good on her. Um, nice to see Anne Haug back racing and Jess Learmonth, who is a short course specialist, doing her first... 70.3 half Ironman distance, put in a pretty respectable showing. No surprises, she was uh, first equal out of the swim. Put on a pretty solid bike when she was only on a roadie with uh, clip-ons. And then a nice steady run. So, you know, to be only a couple of minutes behind Anne Haug, uh, pretty solid performance. Boy side of things, I've never heard of the guy who won it, but what, the, what about that run? Leo Bergier, he's, again, he's a short course guy. This was his first uh, half iron distance race. So no huge surprises. I think he might have won... Junior Worlds one year, but he's he's a top athlete. Like you okay. know, he, he's um, you know, he's not not necessarily winning races, but he's one of those guys that's going to be likely somewhere four through ten or something like that. Okay. So no huge surprise, but he had did it the hard way. He only just ran down our Kiwi uh, Kyle Smith, who was leading for the majority of the race. He sort of came out with the front group in the swim, Kyle Smith, um, and then 
rode away with a with a small group uh, and then put in a one twelve fifty four and just said he didn't quite have enough in the tank to hold off Leo Bajir. There was only you know twenty seconds in it at the end, but uh, that's a good start because there was some some good athletes there. Florian Angert was third, Clement Mignon was fourth, Leon Chevalier fifth. So he beat some uh, some good names there. So good on our Kiwis. Challenge Pareto virus. It happened as well when we had a female race, not a big field, only five raced. Yeah, good chance to get in the top four. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Hayley Chira took that out in front of good old Laura Sedell, who we had on the show a few weeks ago. This is down in Chile. And then Sam Long had a, he is just killing it on the bike. Uh, he did have some some good athletes up against him. He had Matt Hansen, uh, got second. Luciano Tacconi was in third, and Ronaldo Colucci fourth, Brent McMahon fifth. Um, but yeah, he rode a 204, and the rest of those guys were sort of around the 210 to 212 mark. That is dominance, um, isn't it? And then... You still ran a one twelve, but you know, was when you're four minutes in front, you probably uh, probably was a bit more in the in the tank there. One thing I would say is the swim's still not there. You know, it's twenty nine fifty five for the swim, and when you compare that to the guys like Brent McMahon, who he was sort of two and a half minutes down on him. So that's Sam Long is going awesome and uh, great character, but the swim is still not there, and that may leave him. You know, more isolated than what he wants to be when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the St George long distance world champs, um, and you know Hawaii going forward, especially without a wetsuit. So maybe the wetsuit will help him a little bit um, for for St George. Assume I'm assuming it's going to be wetsuits one. Now it's been an announcement that there's been a link between the PTO and the World Triathlon, and they're going to be having the World Multi Sports Championship take place. On the same weekend, so the 18th to 21st of August 2022, um, and this is basically what you might be wondering, what is the multi-sport championship? So we've got the long-distance triathlon, we've got the aquathon, and we've got the aqua bike. Mm. And you often have the duathlon, you'll have all sorts of things sort of thrown in there, um, I guess, and you sometimes have the um, the cross-try and stuff in there as well, so maybe they'll be held elsewhere. It's an interesting move on a number of fronts. It's an interesting move because, A, the long distance, you're going to have everyone doing the Collins Cup. So you're going to get the second tier people there as well. Yeah, so you know, to, to, what happened last year with the Collins Cup, you had that on one day, and then the next day you had the Challenge Championship. So I'm assuming this year, the Collins Cup, oh no, the Collins Cup is on one day, and then the World Triathlon, which is formerly ITU Championship, is you know the next days. Um, so as Bevan said, it's a bit of a head scratcher because you're not going to get no, a, no one's gonna pick the elite an, an, an elite field. So that that's a downside. In fairness, to, although historically they don't, yeah, they, they, no, they, historically they like every couple of years they get one rock star. Yeah, yeah, you get your you know if it was in Spain you'd get Javier Gomez doing it and Mecca won it once and, and Joe, I think Joe Skipper might have won it once and and yeah, so it's definitely. But it's literally like one Rockstar turns up, wins it, mm. and then other years it's kind of second tier people. Yeah. So I think on that side, it's a bit of a head scratch. You're going, well, you're kind of devaluing your, your elite event there. However, the good on the good side of it is we hopefully then get more age groupers going over there, and it would be a real carrot for any age grouper to go over and go, hey, I can go to World Champs, and I can go and watch the Collins Cup and see 
all the Top Guns uh, there. Yeah. So you've got yourself an instant crowd. So I think it's got more pluses than minuses. It's just like, why would you have the Elites there as well? So they'll, they'll still have an okay Elite field, but it'll be like a second tier 70.3 because I know that they'll have some reserves waiting there ready to go to, to plug gaps into the Collins oh, Cup, yep, which, yep. which is what we saw this year. I remember the American guy, Colin Cartier, whatever, Colin Cartier, yeah. Cartier, he got plugged in in the, in the last day when I think someone either got injured or COVID. So in that regard, you're still going to have a race um, and you never know. You might get a few people like Lionel Sanders and stuff will probably bloody try to double up and do both races on both days. So that would be interesting. And uh, yeah, To me, if the World Long Distance Championships were more of a, a race that people actually went for, I'd be disappointed. But I just think you only need a similar field. Hmm. You may not get that one rock star, or you might get sort of a rock star who hasn't done that well in the rankings throughout the year. Yeah. You know, so you might get that. But as an overall, I kind of think they're going to get the same field. So in some ways, yeah, it's kind of on par of what, what it would have been anyway. Um, okay, we've also got not much is going to be happening. We have got Oceanside happening next weekend. A few kind of oh, interesting. It's going to be gold. Yeah. yeah. We're going to see Taylor Nib versus Dan- uh, Daniela Reef versus Paula Finlay versus Ashley Gentle. Uh, so that is, uh, you've got lots of different angles there you can look at from the female side of it. And then on the boys' side, equally, you've got uh, Lionel Sanders, Sam Long, and Alistair Brownlee. So. That's going to be awesome, uh, and then uh, this is so. This is not this weekend; it's the weekend after, uh, and you've also got Ironman South Africa. So finally, we get into some iron distance racing. Um, and Joe Skipper's going down there. We'll see if uh, you know he, he put down some fighting words the other day. He's, so. he's putting it all out there everywhere, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, no. And and as he pointed out, you've got to put down good performances because the you know the rankings at the moment are probably not going to mean too much further down the track when it comes to um, Collins Cup selection, which is, regardless or not what you think of it, it's good money for those guys, really good money for those guys. And getting their their, their ranking high is a big payday at the end of the year. So it's, it's going to become more and more important to race all the way to the line and try to maximise your points and, and not necessarily just uh, cruising to the finish line if you've got the win. So, yeah, good times coming up. Here's a question. I know Daniela, you'd be a fool to write her off. Mm. She's, but she's lost a bit of her aura, hasn't she? Oh, totally. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, two or three years ago, mm. she was kind of in that moment where, like, can she be beaten? Now, all athletes have their moment where they lose that top end. Mm. But at the moment, you don't look at her, like, you know, look at that field there and you don't go, oh, Daniela's got it. Yeah, I totally agree. You wouldn't be surprised if she won it, and you wouldn't be surprised if he crushed it. But yeah, it's a bit like Brownlee when he's on. The, he was on the slide. You go, you still got it in there. Yeah, it's just whether you can pull it out on the day. Yeah. Uh, so no. Okay, we've got a new quiz. It's called John's Quiz. Yes. So I thought we're going to ask a question at the start of each show. You can mull over it. I don't necessarily know the answer. I plugged this one out of my butt, as Bevan would say, yep. and I. Th- I don't actually know if I know the answer. So this week's quiz question, which we'll answer later in the show, is who finished third female at the last Ironman World Champs, which was way back in 2019? Who was the third female the last time they ran it in Kona? Yeah. I am struggling a little bit. I think I've got it, but I could be wrong. Yeah, we'll wait till later in the show. Yeah, okay. We'll, we'll, We'll come back later on. I am struggling a bit with it. Okay. Here we go. We'll come back later on. Uh, let's go to last week's discussion. So last week's discussion was, would you like to see a professional Ironman racing staying as it is or try to innovate? 
what other suggestions can you make around innovation? That's kind of what we looked at there. So, uh, John, were you Chris Dunn, he said broadcast speed, power, and heart rate. Uh, Andy Sinclair, uh, some people are taking the piss here. Swim, pasta, and bike. And then a bigger one I've got, uh, Critter Williams, maybe taking some inspiration from Formula E or Rallycross, thinking joker laps or on a, uh, on a shorter course or fan what's votes. It, what's a joker lap? Well, maybe it's, I don't actually know, but maybe it's a bit like a short shoot. You get a little shortcut um, if you okay. do something in particular, uh, or fans vote for an athlete uh, to draft for a period of time. There's good ideas out there. We just need to find what can work for triathlon. Uh, Eugene Collins got, if it ain't broke, don't try to fix it. Uh, Nikki Sweetman's got, having just live coverage that focuses on more than just the top two would be great. Sometimes you forget there are a few thousand still doing it, or that the, the, the 10th place woman and man is actually moving steadily up through the field. Uh, Rob Bing, keep the Ironman the same, distance, drafting, etc., but make the coverage better and make the course harder to draft on, either reduced numbers or better course layout. Michael Kennedy's got, if possible, it would be good to have the age groupers race on a Saturday and then support and watch the pros on the Sunday. Also give the pro athletes more prize money for active fees for the race. Here's a question. You know, we, we often say you can't do that because no city's going to let pros. But if we did a loop for the pro day yeah, and then a proper course for an Ironman day. Uh, yeah, that's doable. Yeah, so like Saturday would be like a 20k loop on the bike, yeah. 5k run loop, yeah. and then run, we'd swim, we'd swim anyway. I'm hearing you, Bevan. I'm yeah. hearing you. Yeah. Uh, I've got a Rob Dallymore. says primes on sections of the bike. So bonus dollars for the fastest sections, first across the point on the course, not just the finish line. Shorter penalties for drafting, so more will be given out. A um, couple of people came back on Rob, said Rob Dallymore, good idea. I think they did that in Miami last weekend, which they did. Uh, got a good response with athletes chasing them at different times. The, uh, the the bonuses they had in Miami was like a thousand bucks, and it was like uh, fastest. I think they had fastest swim, fastest T one, fastest bike. Maybe it was fastest lap on the bike. I think it was fastest T two, and I think it was the fastest lap on the run because um, it was a multi lap course. Will Conroy point, points out though, it needs to be reasonable dollars. I remember they tried to do it in Kona a few years back. It was like a thousand bucks, not really worth taking the risk when tenth is ten thousand and eleventh is zero. So and agree. The problem, the problem with that is like. Let's say you get a bike prem, but you're like way back in the field. Mm. Who cares? Yeah. You know, like, you know, you kind of need to be in front of the pack to be making it. Like, it always works in the swim mm. because everyone's getting another water at the same time. Mm. But, you know, you could be the fastest runner and get 15th in the race. Or, mm. You know, there was really a guy, cares? there was a guy in that Miami race who just gunned it for a lap. Yeah. And he didn't get anywhere. And But he ran a smoking fast Did lap. He and, and he got it. Uh, so, you for the. For the coverage, you know, it just adds a little element in there. Yeah. But for the top athletes, they, they weren't really going for it. Um, Christopher Doyle's got, what do you mean by professional Ironman racing? You mean that so-called version where pros race and can't even make enough to pay for the meals unless you win the race? <laughs> Ironman has not made any effort to improve the livelihood of pros. To the contrary, support PTO. Paul Fitzpatrick, I know many will bang on about tradition, but even as a keen short course triathlete frankly most Ironman races are boring with the results usually set in the way before the finish yes draft legal Ironman um, could be interesting to make it more TV friendly it would be keeping it for the devoted followers it may be that keeping it for the devoted followers is enough and the whole reason Olympic distance came about was to make it more accessible I think some compromise could be made like a cricket maybe Ironman has to say 
Ironman has to stay. Ironman is a five-day test. Olympic is, uh, oh, right, he's yeah. trying to compare it to... 2020, Iron, yeah. one day. Uh, yeah, and we've kind of got that now. Super League is... is uh, yeah, we've is definitely a, got lots of versions, haven't we? Start. Yeah. Um, I'll do one more. I'll say Jonathan Porter's got mixed up the distances in the order of the disciplines. Possibly only tell the pros the details a couple of days before the race. You've got to be honest, like, this is never going to happen, but it's a cool idea. I wasn't listening. So uh, I was looking at the next one I was doing. So he's saying, you know, you mix up the distances and the order of the race. Mm. So you might, let's say you did like a, you, you did the same distance over a day, mm-hmm. but you might do like half the swim first, half the bike, half the run, mm. half the bike again, half the swim, half the run, you know what I mean? Mm. And you find out an hour before the race. Like, yeah. you know, that, based on the question we put out there, that is innovative. Yeah. Um, I'm hearing you. Um, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, from my point of view, somebody made the comment in there, What if it's not broke, don't try, there you go, uh, Eugene Collins, if it ain't broke, don't try to fix it. And... I guess in some regards it's not broken, but it, it could is, be could it be is, better. It is a spectator sport. It's not. It's never going to be a spectator sport. But what I guess what I was saying and what Bevan mentioned before is, I would love to go to Kona or go to any race, in fact, uh, for the pro, when you've got a good pro field and have it multi lap and you get to see them come past like six or eight times. That's what yeah. you know, what often happens in bike races, which are boring as batshit as well. So we harp on, oh, triathlon's boring to watch. Cycling is. More boring to Lots watch. Lots of people watch the Tour de France. They only watch the half-hour highlights. They don't watch the I whole thing. Okay. I, Phil Patterson's about the only person I know <laughs> who watches the whole stage. It is boring as anything. Yes, there's, there's, you're waiting on the edge but, of your but seat. But it gets the coverage. Yeah, only the highlights package does. No, but like you go on Sky, they show the whole thing every day. Mm. Like, where in the world does anyone show the whole Ironman day? True. Yeah, so why it's, a, it's it? a much bigger sport. It's like golf. Yeah. You know, who watches? Uh, again, a lot of people probably do watch golf, but five days and, and same with test cricket. Yeah, but I could sit down and watch. When well, Millie, I don't watch the other days, but when I was younger and less ambitious, mm. <laughs> I watched a lot of five day <laughs> cricket. <laughs> so, but I would like, and it would motivate me to go and watch events if they were multi lap, you know, uh, and you, you're not, if you're a spectator, you're only seeing things happen. And that's what I'd love to see is, at, you know, our big races like the PTO races or Ironman Hawaii or uh, Frankfurt or just a handful of them, they go, yeah, we're going to try this multi-lap format just for the pros. It's no, Age group is not going not gonna to work. We, uh, we could also do a handicap because nowadays with all the rankings and all that, you know, we could probably get a pretty fair handicap system in place. Hmm. That, I reckon that stuff work, works well with short course. I, I don't know with Iron Man. Yeah, well, it's worth it. But again, this, this question was, mm. what could you throw what out you there? Do? You know, and so like um, that, that one around um, aiming to do different splits and all the rest of it, like, why not? Yeah, the coverage, the coverage side of things, we've, we've had that sort of miles of times before and we all know we'd love to see a lot more coverage. But yeah, okay, nice. Thank okay. you. Uh, let's go to this week's discussion. John hadn't put one in, so I wrote this down. What's the best motivational technique you use when you're struggling to stri- stick to your training program? So this isn't in a race, this isn't when you're dying at the end, this is kind of when you're losing your mojo a little bit, what, what techniques mm-hmm. do you actually use to help you get back on track in a way where you're training in the way you like to train? There we so go. That's this week's discussion. Okay, we're going to interview with the legend that is Pete Jacobs. All right. 
Okay, team, as you heard earlier in the show, you know, sometimes it takes one race and you're an absolute legend. If you win the Hawaii Ironman, you are a legend. But also today's guest, Pete Jacobs, had a second place in Kona as well. He had uh, multiple top tens, one Ironman Australia, a few podiums uh, at uh, Challenge Rope, a couple of second places there. Uh, so he certainly fits the bill. We caught up with him a few times over the years, but not for quite a few years now, especially in Rope. Bevan hung out with him a bit. So welcome along and welcome back to the show, Pete. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. So, um, yeah, we want to sort of start from the beginning because we've, we've talked to you, you know, and wrote and, and Kona and stuff. But, um, yeah, I guess where, where did uh, what was life looking like for you when you were a kid? You know, where, did, where were you sort of brought up and what was what were you doing with, with life up until your sort of probably teenage years? Um, Northern beaches of Sydney. Um, Terry Hills is the suburb. And grew up swimming from a young age. Yeah, mum put us in swimming lessons. I got an older brother and older sister. So the routines were well set by the time I was, um, you know, just a few years old and, and start getting familiar with the water. Um, and then, yeah, pretty much just went through sort of nippers, which is surf lifesaving, you know, little swim races and things in the surf in Australia. And went through surf club, you know, cadets, which is just competing the same stuff, but in older age groups in my teens, um, always was good at cross country at high school. That was something naturally came, came easy for me, but sprinting, I was terrible. Um, wouldn't even get out of the heat. And so, yeah, I guess that speaks volumes for, you know, my natural genetics were definitely towards endurance racing, um, or just endurance sport. So, um, then I guess I, mum got into triathlon in her thirties. And so that was when I was a young teen and I was running with her run group, actually. So it was called Go Jog. Um, nice. It's palindromic, as the tagline said. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, for those who aren't familiar, it means you can read it backwards and forwards. Go yeah. Jog, it's the same thing. So it was, a, it was a run group and I was the only kid and running with, you know, these 40, 50, 60 year olds. And we'd probably do anywhere from 12 to... 15 k's on a saturday morning through a different trail different section of bush anywhere around that northern beaches north shore of sydney so that was a real love of mine was was long distance running as a teenager and yeah i got to do it with mum and then you know got into the local triathlon scene a little bit older brother and sister did a little bit of that as well um and then yeah watching mum do it also um but then it wasn't until i was finished high school in 1999 um, and started a landscaping apprenticeship, which went for four years. And pretty much in the first year um, with my money, with my pay, I bought myself a, a road bike that I think I must have ended up putting clip-ons on it, clip-on aero bars. And it was probably only about $1,600, I think, a Norco, Shimano 105. Nice. And... But then when I got serious, I went and bought some Karima race wheels for about two grand. And by that point, that was definitely two grand was more than my car was worth. Yeah. So I was pretty committed and loving triathlon by that point. Um, but yeah, I hadn't done too much until I was about 18 and finished high school, just a few few little local club events because um, I was more focused in the surf club. Um, so that was ski paddling, board paddling, and just keeping really fit and just sort of doing the cross-country once a year when it came around for school, I'd, I'd run a little bit more and really loved it and trained on my own mostly. Um, and then, yeah, once I'd got into that next scene of um, 
triathlon in in sort of when I was 19, 20 years old, I fell in with a group of older guys again. So, you know, just like when I was running with mum, you know, older people have always sort of been my mentors and led me um, into sport and just means, you know, you learn how to enjoy it. It's not competition and it's very, very supportive as well. You know, the first month I was falling behind on the long Saturday bike rides and then it wasn't long before I was smashing them on the hills and we're doing long four, five or six hour bike rides and um, yeah, just really loving that sport, new sport that I'd pretty much found uh, around, you know, 19 years of age and did did long course triathlon that year, pretty much probably 18, 19 years old and realized, yeah, this was it. This was the challenge that I loved. The It was about a half distance, Sri Shimnoi triathlon in Canberra. Yep. and yeah that was it i was sold i didn't this short stuff was a bit of fun and and everything but no i really loved long distance so then i got into half ironman and that was back in the days when you had to qualify for um qualify for australia australian ironman yeah, yeah. which was at foster tongue curry and you know i did a half and i did well and they call your name you have to sit around in the hot sun in the afternoon and wait for your name to be called and I stood up and, you know, every, my mum, I think, was like, what? what? What are you doing? I stood up and went and grabbed my spot and that was it. And then the next year I was doing um, Ironman Australia and I was 20 years old. And that was the end of it. You know, I did one and did nine and a half hours exactly to plan. And it was clear it was my natural, you know, abilities where they lay. And from that point on, that set the dream of of. Kona being um, something I wanted to do really well. I don't think I even knew what Kona was. I hadn't watched a video. I hadn't seen or read anything. But from my first Ironman, it was just like, oh, yeah, no, this is something I think I can be the best in the world at without really knowing what that meant. Was there a few debacles along the way to, to, to get to that point in terms of, you know, everyone has their first races and they make some complete balls ups. So uh, anything anything you can remember from those really early days? Um, the really early days, no, went relatively smoothly. Um, yeah, I can't think of anything really silly other than, you know, losing my Oakley sunglasses Ooh. in a triathlon, you know, you sort of put them on the bike. I think I must've like hooked them over the bike and then you're, you're 10 K into the bike and realize, oh no, I don't know where my sunglasses are. Um, so when a young kid, you lose your nice pair of Oakleys, that was yep. a bit annoying. Um, but otherwise, no. Oh, and one time I put a screwdriver through those Karima wheels while trying to push the brake pads out of the brake caliper with a very <laughs> small, very sharp screwdriver and slipped off the brake pad and went straight into the wheel. Luckily, it didn't affect the structural integrity at all. Um, but yeah, little things like that where you just devo at something that you've you've broken because you've been a bit silly and, and not quite experienced enough. But Pete, when you were a kid, you what kind of level of an athlete were you? Were you like a like a regional champ? Were you like were you just a kind of a good local high school kid? Um, yeah, I I would always win my school level cross country and and swimming. Then district, I'd do yeah probably podiums, and then regional. Um, yeah, by regional, I wasn't competitive in anything because, yeah, I was very much just a little bit of swim training a few times a week. I wasn't, you know, doing yeah. 10 sessions a week like others. And I was doing a little bit of running. I wasn't just running and in a run squad like the runners at, at regional level. But in my final year at high school, I did quite well. And I think I may have won regionals 
um, and got to state and then, of course, got my ass kicked at state. <laughs> um, so that was as good as I did. And, um, yeah, and I wasn't even, like I said, I wasn't even cycling until I was about 18 after I finished school. So, so what was it like? What was it like as in regards to, um, you know, you probably didn't leave school thinking I'm going to be a professional triathlete or a professional athlete even. And so what was it like going from that moment of just being, you know, a kid who's loving sport, taking on some fun challenges, thinking to the point where it's like, actually, this could be a career. What's that like? Um, yeah, I went straight into my landscaping apprenticeship, whereas a lot of other mates of mine sort of took the year off and did a bit of casual work and that sort of thing. Um, so I was straight into work and straight into routine. And that was the first year when I said like, uh, I started thinking about long course triathlon. And then it may not have been until, yeah, the might have been the end of that year or sometime in the middle of that year that I did do my first Ironman. And to suddenly think, oh, wow, I, I think I'm good at this. Actually, it was a couple of years later. Sorry, it was about 2002 because, yeah, halfway through my apprenticeship. So I did one age group foster. The next year, I was like, right, I think I can pretty much go top 10 as a 21-year-old age grouper here. Um, I think I can do it. And I trained too much and I was fatigued on race day and ended up going an hour slower than my previous year. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but even so, I still had that in my mind of, right, I think I can still be really good at this. So that was the last two years of my apprenticeship were those two Ironmans. And so that next year was, well, I finished my apprenticeship. What am I going to do? Well, let's let's go overseas and take my turn to take a year off and go and do something. So in my mind, I always wanted to be the best in the world. But on the surface, it's just I'm just a young kid taking a sabbatical from work for a year. I've just finished my apprenticeship. I'm just going to go have some fun. So, but like I said, deep down, the reason for me leaving the apprenticeship was, or finishing the apprenticeship and then not continuing on full-time work was because I believed that that was my path and that was why I wanted to give it a go. And who, who were you sort of looking up to at that stage? Because it was probably just before the, the Aussie domination that you were part of for, for a number of years with Macca and Crowe. Um, I guess Greg Welsh was probably still going all right around about them. So who, who were you sort of really looking up to? Um, yeah, anybody, good question. anybody. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was there was guys around Jason Shortest in Ironman Australia every year, um, but that, that was right <laughs> around the period when – so my first year as a professional was um, I did Ironman New Zealand, and so I got to race um, Cam Brown – uh, oh, there was a few few guys there, a few of the Swedes, mm. you know, a couple of the top Swedes were there. And I want to say even, oh, I can't remember. I've got a classic Gordo. old photo Gordo of was it. probably there and bloody Bjorn, Bjorn Anderson probably had yep. about a 15-minute lead off the bike probably. <laughs> yeah, and, and Klaas Bjorling, Klaas Bjorling was it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, so that was one race. And then four weeks later I went over to Australia and I think that might have been Macca's first year 2004 yeah. um but either way there was always some of those guys around racing new zealand or australia mm -hmm. and definitely you know started looking up to these guys that i was on the podium with well top five i top mm -hmm. i think i was fifth at new zealand fourth at australia and got a kona spot and so i was on podium on stage with those guys and that was definitely you know fueling my confidence mm -hmm. 
And just I, I've listened to a few other interviews you've done, and and in terms of you know building your training up and stuff, I don't think you ever really had a, a coach as such. So how how did you sort of go about building your knowledge through through these years? You know, you obviously you mentioned those sort of mentors and older guys early on, but you know, if you're self coached and, and getting yourself to Hawaii win, um, how did you go about that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Early on, I had the the old guys that were just the older age groupers um, teaching me a little bit about nutrition. We were mixing our own mixes of maltodextrin and huh. this and that and, you know, really weird tasting stuff at the time. Um, but yeah, I remember that we mixed our own stuff. And then um, I guess, so I learned a bit from them. And I had a physiologist, a guy doing his um, PhD at University of New South Wales, and he was writing my program those first year or two of me being a professional. So I was starting to learn a bit about fat adaptation protocols, and you know I knew absolutely nothing about what that means in the big picture like I do now, but I was understanding there was reasons to do what I was doing. You know, the almost fasted after a session and just eating pure fat, and then. Um, doing a solid session the next day. So I did that first off for his PhD studies and we did little muscle tests and we did some scans to see how much um, fat or triglycerides or um, even glucose, I think, had stored in my muscles. And then, you know, based on that diet and then, you know, but then later on I did it in training uh, for Hawaii that year in 2004 as well, those similar sort of protocols to really get me fat adapted um, so that was the first couple of years. Then after that, I think pretty much on my own, I had such highs and lows with my fatigue that there was no point trying to work with somebody because even back then, and I still feel the exact same now, I, I can't handle somebody's questioning why my watts would not be as good or um, why I didn't do a session or, you know, so if somebody started to give me negative feedback about oh you've missed that session so you're not going to be as fit as you should be and blah 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 because i could only do what i could do even back then and um that was what i was starting to learn and realize that that was something i needed to embrace so it was probably yeah starting to get better at hawaii and i sat down with al Pittman, who i've mentioned before as a mentor around that 2008 nine um we sat down and scribbled on the piece of paper right next year it's top 10 then it's top five then it's podium and then you win it and so that must have been yeah yeah five years four five years out from um from winning it and yeah we just had a bit of we worked together a bit i was like i had a sponsor um who's a good friend he said oh look i'm gonna pay al to to mentor you and that was part of the deal and um so yeah, then we just slowly built up. And in that time, I found a book that I, I got all my run sessions out of, started, started looking at run technique with a few other friends that I ran with, very much about chatting about technique and efficiency, which we got from, um, started thinking about when Born to Run, the book came out and the Taramara tribe of um, uh, indigenous people down there in Mexico. And yeah, that was, yeah, all, all part of my learning process was much more, um, I guess, talking to many people in many different fields and then just ac accumulating my own experience and trying to learn along the way. Um, but yeah, followed that training book for my run plan for, you know, the next sort of three years um, leading up to, to my win. 
Um, so I had a weekly schedule that just, just, I stuck to it and it worked. I knew what day it was based on what training I was up to. Not so much because I knew what day of the week it was. So what, what did, I know you weren't a high volume guy or anything, but what, what did a, say, a typical-ish type week look like for you when we maybe compare that to some of the other, you know, Sam Long the other day was saying he does 45 hours training a week. Um, <laughs> you know, what, what did a sort of typical week look like for you? Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I, was, I mentioned Sam Long the other day and it's like, well, he's very young, so he can get away with a lot of stuff mm. and he, he hasn't won Kona yet, you know. <laughs> he hasn't really been tested. Um, there's a lot of hype around him, but, you know, it it's, depends on what you're really trying to train for. What are you trying to adapt to? Um, and so that was, I guess, how my training fitted in. What I was trying to adapt to was just Ironman. And so my typical week was, you know, three long rides. Um, there might be, say, two on the road of five, five and a half hours and a wind trainer that was just long and steady as well. And then a couple of recovery rides uh, that would end up being around 15 hours of cycling, probably maxed out at 17 um, there in the Kona buildup. And running was two key sessions so one was sort of 1k intervals roughly and one was uh longer tempo so maybe it, the maximum that it would have been would have been maybe two 7k uh tempo with a bit either side so it might have been you know an 18k uh, session um so not big volume on the run i only ever cracked in my kona builds I only ever hit 100k a couple of times um and a long run was key on Sunday and then the other runs were just time on the legs. So like I said, 80 to hundred K of running a week. And then swimming was just when I found time to jump in the pool. So it probably was only around, you know, three, maybe four times a week um, with a recovery session being one of them at least. And then that was anywhere from four to five K roughly, you know, not a huge amount of volume in the pool because that was enough. I had the fitness, so I didn't need to, to work more fitness. Um, I had technique because just been swimming since I was a few years old. And obviously, and I focus on my technique every single stroke, riding, running, swimming. That's efficiency is, is key for me. Um, and yeah, and um, but when I feel good, because I wasn't in a squad, it was swimming was definitely one of those ones where when I feel good and I had a lane to myself, the... And the same with training for, for myself on my own all the time. Very much I could get in that zone and train in that zone, that flow state really well because I was always on my own. And so when I felt that, that ease of effort and the effort was much greater, um, I was in the zone. I wasn't worried about what anyone else was doing or if I was going too fast or too slow or any of that thing. So swimming when I felt good, I'd have a lane to myself. So fully focused on technique efficiency and that flow state of just how good it felt for me to be swimming fast and the same i get from running and and cycling um so looking back that's how you know how i trained for kona and how i think it's really important to train for kona is learning how to be in that that state of your own presence and be awareness and um, get familiar with all of those feedback loops that, that are going to occur on race day to help you be efficient, aware, calm, confident, and so on. Um, we'll talk about your Kona progression in a second, but <clears throat> excuse me. Um, what was the what was the key races 
outside of Kona, which were real breakthrough moments for you? Um, it was funny when when once Philippines seventy point three started up, maybe about two thousand and um, seven or something like that, or even earlier. Um, that just became a standard. Every year I was going to the Philippines in early August, and then I was going there with moderate fitness, and then I'd come back, and then the build would start from there. Um, so that became a, a standard event. Um, prior to that, in in terms of my entire career, the key moments were always the Australian long course champs. Um, that was always a unique race. Sometimes it was Port Macquarie, then it became uh, Huskinson as well, and and some courses that just suited me. And the time of year suited me. It was early on in the year, so obviously I could just sort of get fit January, Feb. Um, and I wasn't overtrained, I was feeling good, and I could just go out there and push and, and perform quite well at that Australian long course champs each year. And Crowey always raced it, so there was always a good benchmark to, to compare myself against and just to be motivated. And, and I always loved that that racing and racing Crowey. Um, and then, yeah, I guess starting to head over to Roth was interesting um, and, and see on a big European stage and a, and a pretty cool course, um, how I was faring against some of these other guys also. So that was always a, usually a pretty good confidence builder, um, as well. So yeah, only a few key races that I did a few, did multiple times that fitted into sort of a, a pretty good schedule of the year. Um, and then, yeah, but between, Philippines in early August and and Kona generally I did I didn't race again um in those years that I was doing really well and I would have raced often raced Ironman Australia in April um or not I often the key for me that were doing well in Kona was that for four years that I went top 10 I had an injury in that either you know February March April which sidelined me for six weeks so that was key for me to actually have forced rest um, so that my body could regenerate and then get ready for the kind of a slow build through June, July, and then just hit it in August, September. Mm, nice. So in, in terms of your kind of progression, when I looked at the years, uh, 2006, you got 17th. Uh, 2008 did not look like it went particularly well with 59th uh, but then you started cranking it up with an 8th in 09, uh, 9th in 2010, 2nd uh, in 2011 and then winning it in 2012. So 2009 I had a look at um, and hopefully you've got some recollections of this but it looked like you were kind of with the pack um, but then on the run, uh, it looked like there was only about three minutes covering fifth, fifth through tenth, um, and you ran a two forty one marathon. So you must have uh, come from nowhere and run past an awful lot of people on the on the uh, run leg. Yeah, yeah, my bike was always um, my my weakness, and so yeah, I did come off the bike a fair bit down um, that year, but then the you know my my body my my fatigue my my issues in some respect that i just couldn't push um physically couldn't you know really work myself however just you know after you've done 180k at aerobic effort the body starts to warm into it and starts to feel good so i was running well at the, on those years and um yeah was able just to run through it and i was starting to like i said really focus on technique and efficiency 
the mindset stuff was starting to come into it as well about how to, you know, uh, um, block out the heat, um, block out any of those other stresses. And yeah, just feeling good running through people. And that was the run. I really did feel good right to the finish line. Um, you know, often my legs have, have blown up a bit. My quads have blown up. But no, that year, yeah, ran straight to the finish line feeling good. Yeah. Um, 20, 2011 was obviously, you know, the, the big breakthrough um, when you got second place. Uh, that was the year for people that don't recall it was when Crowe managed to um, smash it on the bike and, and was yeah. he was in a great position off the run. So you probably would have need to run a bloody 230 something to catch him, I imagine. Um, maybe just talk us through that 2011 race because I know you had a really good battle out there with um, Andreas Raylert. So maybe just sort of talk through that race and, and what you learned from that because we often see that, you know, to get to win Kona, most of, most of the, the winners have usually got on the podium. So what, what happened that year that enabled you to, to get that second place and then kick on? Yeah, um, yeah, it was a good year. I was, yeah, the best prepared that I'd been. Um, I knew that, you know, the timeline was looking good for, uh, you know, stepping up. You know, ninth the year before with a penalty on the bike, for, for taking too long to pass um, and that fast run, um, I knew that I was in well in with a shot if I just didn't get a penalty on the bike. So, but the train was so long, you know, um, every year really it is. Um, it may have, it broke up a little bit <laughs> in the last time, but yeah, it's um, to be at the back, it doesn't suit me at all and my, my strengths and weaknesses to, I don't have that top end. So when you're at the back of the train and the guys are starting to go down the hill and you're still coming up it and then the gaps start to spread out. And so suddenly you've got to be really hitting, you know, high wattage to get over the crest and down the hill. And so that gap doesn't keep opening and opening and opening. And then on the uphill, you sort of got to sit in a little bit and and you lose your momentum on the uphills. So eventually I kept slipping back through those, those sections just because like I say it's not my style of riding back then um I couldn't do it and gaps opened up after after Waikoloa when there's you get to the next hilly section um sorry Kauai High um the next hilly section leading up to Harvey you know I just couldn't stay with the group dropped off um but a few others dropped off and we probably formed a, another little group behind us uh, behind the main group and and sort of worked a little bit together but I just wasn't feeling great on the bike you know um and then like I said though came in off the bike um I think you know Crowy and I ran about the same time that year um 242 so you, you were a bit quicker came off <laughs> I was just quicker I don't want to say that but I was just <laughs> he was high 242 I must have been low 242 um and came off the bike you know, really confident though, because I was maybe, you know, maybe I was 10 minutes behind everybody and, you know, well, six minutes, only about six minutes behind Crowy. So yeah, I knew every, everyone was still well within um, striking distance. So that was, that was it. Just put my head down and got to work. Um, I still probably walked a few aid stations like I did pretty much every year. Um, this still gets to a point where I need to, need to walk and, and recover briefly. And yeah, but I mean, the, the lessons that I took from, from that year into 2012 were to not, not be in that same position on the bike. Um, well, first off, do some better training 
especially that lot final few weeks of training. And so in 2012, I asked Hank Vogels, can you help me write um, a program just for these last few weeks, like the type of intervals and zones and everything that I should be targeting because I'm not out there just doing what I know to do, which is five hours on the bike and, and feels great. I can't go ride five hours on the bike in my taper um, three times a week. So that really helped, got me strong. Um, the taper was good. Um, I also learned that I, in, in training and everything, my guts were no good. I was going to the bathroom often in runs or before I went running. So I looked after my gut and got that a bit better. And everything just triggered me to, I, I want to win now. You know, it was very much, I want to win. It's not just some fancy the thought that I think I can win one day. No, it was like, no, I want to win. So I did more things that I needed to do just to look after myself that little bit better and prepare that little bit better. And that's what kind of meant that on, on before the race, I turned up in 2012, just super relaxed and, and really calm confidence. Just training had been great. My mindset had been excellent in training. I'd been visualizing, I'd been practicing being present and gratitude and those major factors of, of doing the right thing and making the right decisions on race day. I'd been practicing, you know, by having that calm, present state of mind. So yeah, race day was relatively easy to just make the right decisions. The body, you know, everything was done and, um, it, just meant that I saw the break when the break started to go. I went round Crowy. I didn't let myself get too far back in the pack um, early on in the bike ride. So those were the main things that meant, you know, just a little bit of bike prep, a little bit of looking after my body and my health a bit better. And then in race day, being more aware and making better decisions. You mentioned earlier on about sort of trying to block out the heat. You know, obviously pro athletes have got a big advantage over age group athletes in terms of being out there um, and doing more training and, and hot conditions. But, you know, mentally, is, is there anything in particular that you've tried to do to eliminate that, you know, the, just the oppressive conditions over there? Yeah, I just taught, told myself it's not that hot and I believed myself. That was it. Um, I'd practice that in training, like here in, in Noosa, where I was living at the time in September, middle of the day, it's hot. And I would go for runs and be visualizing Polani Hill and I'd be visual and feeling the heat. And then I would just override that thought and just focus and go, oh no, I can feel a breeze on my skin. And I just, I guess I just got really good and I always had the ability, but I improved that ability to change my perception of what I was experiencing. So I was, and I still do to this day, I love the heat and that challenge of overriding your body. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was doing a bit of hot Pilates, you know, in the hot, hot room. And it's like an aerobics workout, you know, sort of high intensity interval type stuff in a hot studio. And I loved that, that it took me back to Kona. Like I'd walk in there and I'd start sweat. I'd be holding a plank and it's just dripping off your face onto your towel. And it just took me back to Kona. And at the same, and I was practicing in those, those um, sessions in the, in the hot studio, that exact thing of just telling myself it's not hot. And 
it's amazing how easy it is to block it out and to calm yourself. And then you look around the room and you see that everybody's, we've finished the effort, but everybody's still breathing heavy and they're still looking around as if they're in hell when really it's, that's just a hundred percent their mind saying, oh, keep breathing heavy, keep feeling hot. You're really tough. This is really hard. Whereas if you shut down every thought in your mind and you're standing in a room, there's no reason to be panting. There's no reason to be, you know, hunched over, hands on your knees, think, telling yourself how hard and hot it is. And yeah, that was it. I'd, I'd love it. And it's, it's very interesting that it, you have to take ego out of it to be able to do that because you're in a room of other people where everybody's expecting everybody to kind of show that they're doing a hard effort. You know, that's, that's our society these days is show us that you're tough, show us that it hurts you, which is the complete wrong approach to building physical and mental resilience is, which is stop those thoughts that this is hard and this is tough and this is hot. Like show me how you can control your mind. And I mean, we just got to look at how Navy SEALs train and all of these other um, groups that are at high, high level. And yet when it filters down to what's happening in society, you know, masses rule, peer pressure rules, and we're now all, you know, showing each other constantly that we're in this state of fatigue and pain. And um, yeah, I guess I I clued onto that early and, and may have even run past a competitor and even may have mentioned, oh, geez, it's so hot, isn't it? <laughs> <You know? laughs> nice. <laughs> just, uh, and it, it, it's just conversation, but it's it it reinforces to me that i'm loving it here and i'm just toying with this heat and i can block it and yeah it, it just takes it to that next level of um confidence i'm giving myself confidence by reminding myself of the heat while at the same time blocking out that it's actually hot and it's amazing you can really feel the breeze on your skin if you try, if you know how to feel breeze on your skin, if you, if you can make yourself almost have goosebumps on a hot day, you can do it. Like it's amazing how, yeah, the environment you can be in, but still imagine it's so cold that you give yourself self goosebumps. Um, that's pretty cool. Nice. Now, now 20, 2012, you know, I, I had a quick look at the footage this morning. So if people want to go out there, you just plug in 2012 Ironman World Champs and you can go and see Pete kicking some ass over there. There's a couple of things that that, that sprung out to me. Firstly, um, we talked through the swim bike. Firstly, it looked like Crowy, Crowy was out with you coming out of the swim, which I was like, how the hell did that happen? Um, and secondly, it seemed like you almost did a Crowy on the bike what he had done the previous year in terms of getting in a breakaway and being in a very strong position. So maybe just sort of talk us through, you know, uh, 2012, how the, the swim and the bike went. Yeah. Um, the swim was just, you know, I felt really fit. I was confident. I was in a great position. And, but as we went around halfway and having chatted to Macker about this race um, afterwards, um, I know it was him that was sort of on my feet or on Raylet's feet. Um, who was on my feet and around the boat at halfway, I could see that there was a little bit of a gap and that I was the last guy in that front half dozen or several guys. And so I figured if I move up onto the hip of the guy in front of me, which is quite easy to do, you just follow the draft up and to the side, a little bit more effort, but not much. Um, that would very quickly open up two meters behind our group if I wasn't there. 
And so I did that. And sure enough, that just meant that that two meter gap to the next couple of guys like Raylet and Macca opened up and then they never bridged that gap back up. And that just meant that they came out a few minutes down on the swim and were never in that front group. And that might've changed the entire dynamics of the race um, that year. So, you know, Raylet got second by five minutes to me that year. And so he was always in that group behind, always chasing. And yeah, when we hit the bike, I was feeling good. I didn't let myself drop too far back. And so when we got to the Queen K, I was in a relatively good position, probably mid pack. And there's probably, I don't know how many guys in the pack, but over a dozen probably. And then we, as we start to get out towards Waikoloa, about 45 KN, could see a little gap of a few guys off the front and Crowey just letting that gap open up. And I realized that now I have to go uh, around him and go to that front group. That was, I was feeling good um, as I should have been and went, went around and went to that group and then started leading the race for a bit myself up to um, getting close to the base of the climb to Harvey. And how before, much, how much effort does that take in that situation? Because this is something age groupers probably can't really quite comprehend. Is so you see a gap opening up, and you're going to have to go past however many people to get there. Have you kind of got to go like all in to to make that um, to to get past and and keep going past other athletes? No, it's not. It's not an all in effort. Certainly not lactic. It's something that you wouldn't want to sustain the entire time. But it's not beyond your means of easily recovering from. And that's funny, just this morning on my ride this morning, I had this conversation with a mate about how do you pace an Ironman? What's what's the approach? And yeah, I spoke to him for about 10 minutes. I'll try and make it shorter. Now, basically you have to just go on instinct and feel and you're so fit on race day. You're so rested. You're so aerobic that a, if you do push that aerobic limit a little bit and accumulate a little bit of stress, well, it's likely that you're going to flush that out by the end of the bike ride anyway, because you've still got another three hours of aerobic exercise to be doing. Obviously, you don't want to go lactic. Um, that's like next level and feel any pain in your muscles. So really avoid that. But in terms of how hard can you go, it's instinct. It's just listen to your body and your body will tell you. And you know, I went hard then and I went pretty solid when I was on the front on my own. I was setting my own pace. I could ride the hills up solid because I didn't have anyone in front slowing me down. And then I could go over the hills and down the other side at my own pace as well. I didn't have to work hard to bridge a gap. And so there's many advantages to being on your own and riding your own race. And then towards the second half of the ride, the front little group where we were in, in second, Valenaka was several minutes up the road. But there was about three or four of us came back together and I needed a break. And I sat behind these guys for a little while while I just switched off mentally and reset. And I, and the thing that I, I mentioned this morning to my mate was that it's more neural fatigue. And I guess by that, it means we've all had those times where you feel rubbish, where you might be running. And I did this the other, a few weeks ago, we did a long run and we're about two hours 30 into this long run. And I'm just tight and I feel terrible. And we're just running along the flat road at the end of this run. And I wanted to hit 35 and I was only at about 32 Ks or something, but I wanted to get back to the car because I just knew if I get back to the car, if I taste something sweet, if I pour some cold water over me, I'll be good and I'll reset. And sure enough, I went from 
struggling and, and feeling so painful and uncomfortable running five minute Ks to having a, a two minute break of water and a drink. And maybe I did a quick hip stretch um, and then starting to run again at four minute K pace. So it's this neural fatigue of your body just getting stuck in a pattern that you just need to learn to listen to it, how to reset it, how to slow down, listen to your body so that you can just re reawaken different pathways and not let that body get stuck in this tension uh, patterns that are going to then hold back and make everything harder. So to answer your question, it's listening to your body. It's not that hard to do that short effort. Um, it certainly doesn't feel anaerobic at all. It's more just a slightly more concerted effort. And then you catch up to the group, you back off for a little bit, and then you go again. Ironman's not about holding, you know, 200. And for me, I'm aiming, you know, well, that day pretty much held 275 watts on average, but you're certainly not riding at 275 watts the entire time. It's up and down all the time. And you've just got to learn to go with those inputs of the body and let the, those neural signals and that tension and then that nervous system, that's the thing that you want to be riding, you know, whether you're backing it off or increasing it, depending on where that's at at that certain point in the race. And um, when it comes to the run, again, when I was watching this footage, um, it looked like you're eight minutes down on Marino. So for people who don't know Marino van Holnecker, he he set some amazingly fast times. He won Austria one year and you know, he won it multiple years, actually. And he had often been in positions to to win Kona or certainly be on the podium. And he, I'm pretty sure he got a podium one year. But he's eight, he's <laughs> eight minutes up on you. You're coming off the bike, you know, you're confident and you run. Is Marino in your mind very much, or are you just sort of going, I've just got to settle in and do my business here? Yeah, I think that year he was the year that he set the world record at the time at Austria. And so off the bike, the first little while, I was definitely just focused on my own um, technique and my own efficiency and just running as quick as I could. And um, but uh, and then about six, seven K in, I had to stop and stretch my hips and I knew that would happen. My lower back always gets a bit tight. Um, so I stopped and stretched my hips for, you know, 20 seconds or something and got going again, but I still wasn't making inroads in that whole fast Ali drive section back into town. And it wasn't until I got to the top of Polani, which like I said, felt very good because I visualized it so much in training. I had my head down. I was really relaxed. There was no, it wasn't an effort at all for me to go up that steep hill that then I started getting word that, oh, he's slowing down. And within a couple of kilometers along the Queen K, I passed him at an aid station, blow it up with his head in an ice bucket. So that seven and a bit minute lead went to nothing in a few kilometers and from that point on i had a five minute lead to rail it still and i knew i just had to basically just keep plodding forward and and it would be it'd be mine and um that yeah so i did at one stage though when i wasn't making inroads probably coming back into town uh, after that first alihi drive section that i thought oh, i did say to myself well he's he's the better guy on the day he's the world record holder and it's just the way it is, but just keep going and this is what you're going to get. And yeah, resided myself a little bit to it because I was still running well and feeling good, but hadn't made any time into him much at all. Um, but then boom, it just disappeared. And whether that was a, he, he went too hard on the bike, which 
You know, I don't, I don't think is probably it. I think he went too hard on the start of the run um, and just overheated and maybe, maybe even the Polani Hill, he just went a bit too lactic, a bit too anaerobic and he just couldn't recover from it because it was a very, very quick decline to go. He's fine on a leaky drive and running well to he hits the Queen K and he is just absolutely gone. So, you know, maybe Polani did it for him, <laughs> just made him that little bit of anaerobic work was enough that he just, you know, never came back from it. You almost bloody ran into him. I remember we were there that year and we were, I was out on the Queen K and I, and I looked at the footage this morning. You almost ran into the back of him in the uh, aid station. He was completely gone burger. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, very, very quickly, <laughs> he lost a lot of time very quick. And, and I just knew I had confidence and that's where having been there so many times before, um, being fairly experienced in Ironman by then, that I knew that nobody runs quicker in the back half of an Ironman. Like Raylert wasn't going to start running, you know, five minutes quicker than I was for the next half marathon. Half marathon. Um, it just doesn't happen. I just had to keep my same pace and keep plodding forward and, yeah, so that's how it ended about, up. Let's talk about that because you, yours was one of, I wouldn't say the easiest wins, but it was you had the win very early on in the run, if you know what I mean, in comparison to somebody mm. else. I mean, so at that stage, obviously, there's still a job to be done. So I'm sure you're focusing on that. But where did you go to within yourself? Um, yeah, I think I just switched off and, and relaxed through it for the uh, down into the energy lab um and out of the energy lab and it was sort of once i got out of the energy lab back up onto the queen k when you're like okay i've done the hard bit i've done the energy lab now it's just a jog along this highway that i've done dozen times before that was when it started to you know really just go, oh yeah i'm good and and walk the aid stations and and cool off and um and then i probably had a good five six k where i was starting to really just celebrate and know that i had it in the bag um because I was still feeling fine. There wasn't any any trouble brewing. It's awesome. So, yeah, I saw the, the shot. You're able to start celebrating running down uh, Palani Hill, which is, um, which is a nice feeling when you're a couple of Ks out from the end. Yeah. So did, did, um, did the race change life much for you? You know, obviously you become a champion, you become a, a legend and so on, but did, uh, did things change much after that? Um, no, not, not so much. You know, we traveled to a few more races and, and appearances, um, at races and that sort of thing, but no, life didn't change too much. Um, we made, you know, a permanent move to Noosa. We bought a house, uh, that we're still very happy in here in Noosa, uh, the following year. And yeah, it, it didn't really change that much at all other than I want to do it again. Um, you know, that, that feeling of that, that, feeling of like i was saying in that flow state that just in training it's about the journey not the destination always i'm always saying that because you learn about yourself you grow character you you spend time in that introspective meditative state when you're in training and that is something that's just you know it is a bit addictive that feeling of of bliss and but you want that again in training and of course you want the the absolute joy of it all on race day also so i became you know focused on doing that again that was something that was high on my my mind and i believe that i could um i obviously my body had proven that it it was good at that it had the ability to do that but yeah i 
I started having, you know, more fatigue issues. I started, which I'd always had, but they started to come around a little bit more. Uh, I then, um, I've raced 70.3 sunny coast in September in 2013. And it was one of my best ever halves. I was super fit, really humming. I smashed the bike and then was off the front on the bike. Only Clayton Fattel came off the bike with me. And then, yeah, just again, just then just had a super quick run, uh, out in front on my own felt great, but never fully recovered. Uh, one side of my glutes and lower back was always a bit tight and never, never recovered fully confidently or, and now, now I've just re like in the last week recently seen something showing, uh, an issue with my hips that then causes, um, yeah, definitely some neural fatigue. So I'm not as strong as when my hips are, are completely mobile and more even just some exercises I've done this week. It's like, oh, wow, I'm just, I'm stronger. Like I just, I had a great ride this morning because the last few days I've been doing these hip mobility exercises, um, for one specific part of my hip. Like I've done hip mobility exercises my whole life, but suddenly you just tweak one little thing and think about one thing differently. Now I'm thinking about, you know, my sacrum, um, affecting how my hips are moving and suddenly just having a different input, a different thing. I'm thinking of it. I'm feeling really strong and confident in my body because, you know, so I'm still learning and that's, yeah, I'm still keen. I'm, uh, you know, training, I'm doing the 50 K trail race this Saturday, um, which is, it may be done by the time this comes out end of March. And then, um, a week later, early first weekend in April doing the hell of the West triathlon, just as a little race, haven't done a race in a couple of years. And then the, the big goal is cans, which is, you know, about 13 or 14 weeks from now or something. So that I've still got that same, it's the same feeling now that I had back then, which is I want to practice being in that that state of confidence, that state of present, um, and, and feeling that connection with the body doing what it does really well while my mind is really present and allowing it to work really well. And I think I can be better. Like I, I know I can be better cause I've just learned so much about how the body works since 2012 that, yeah, I want to test it all again and I want to see if I can. And, it's not so much see if I can, it's much, it's still that battle of, okay, I've got to not self-sabotage. I've got to do the things that I know are good for me, um, which is everybody's battle really, isn't it? Mm. And, um, you know, really have faith in my instinct. And so I want to go back to Cairns, do really well. And then if Cairns goes really well, then I, you know, go to Kona. Mm. Um, we met um, Evan, your manager at the time over in Kona, a couple of times when you were, you were over there. Um, were you able to capitalise like on that that victory? We, you, you know, obviously there's a paycheck. And we know the, the money in Kona is reasonable, but compared to other sports, it's it's not really. You know, you're not going to live off that for the rest of your life. But were, were you able to, with Evan, sort of capitalise on that win and, and sort of set yourself up nicely so there was you know a lot less um, pressure on you for for the following years? Yeah, yeah, for 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 a young little Australian kid who hasn't raced overseas much at all, that we did pretty well. Um, happy with that, and that's what I just you know I'm always just grateful for what I get. I'm, I'm never thinking that 
worrying that somebody else got more than me. And there's always circumstances to things like that. But no, I was happy with with how it was and the sponsors that I worked with, with Boardman, um, with ASICS um, and a whole bunch of other great sponsors that, yeah, we, we did did well that, um, but, you know, now I'm approaching it totally differently. I have no sponsors. I, you know, I've got to make an income doing, you know, health and performance coaching and I can't commit 100% of my weekly hours to training. I can't commit any more money to it. Like I, I, I don't want to be getting a massage every week um, like I did in 2012. I, yeah, I'm, I'm figuring how to be more resourceful. You know, having said that, you know, just, just upgraded. We just got a better, um, a better wind trainer. I've got a kicker mm-hmm. that Jamie and I just sort of swap out on. And we bought a treadmill, uh, a few weeks ago as well. So I've never had a treadmill before either. So there are signs that yes, I'm taking this really seriously and I'll invest the money where it benefits both Jamie and I, I guess, um, not just myself. So I need to, yeah, just figure out how we, how do I get the most out of my body without having, you know, the, the money that others do that have got, you know, a basically a live in masseuse every single day, getting massages to keep their 40 year old body going. Mm. Um, and, and that's where I don't, I don't see it as a 40 year old body. I see it as a body that I can get more aerobic and healthier and with less inflammation than it's ever had based on what I now know. And for an aerobic sport where it's purely based on aerobic capacity, you know, how many aerobic mitochondria can I fit into my body? That's, that's, that's the main limiter really. And, and that's not a huge factor that's dropping off with age. There's certain things that are dropping off with age, but I don't think that where no one's been really tapping in or not many tap into that, their, their, their peak of what they could do because they don't understand completely what they're trying to do or how, what they eat is costing them aerobic capacity or how, what they sleep is costing them aerobic capacity. Those factors, or, or let's say they're low in a nutrient, that's costing you aerobic capacity. So I think I can optimize all of these other aspects of my health and my life that are going to give me more aerobic capacity than I've ever had, even though I'm much older. And, and so I think that I can be on the world stage, on the podium again, because I think I... I can get more aerobic capacity than a lot of others out there because like we're saying, you know, maybe Sam Long will be great and I hope he will, but uh, you've seen what's happened to Lionel training that way where you just go out and you're going for KOMs every, every week and anaerobic efforts off the charts and doing swift races every other day. They're undermining their aerobic capacity. And so when it comes to Ironman in a hot environment like Hawaii, they've they've struggled to be able to replicate that or they've gotten injuries along the way like stress fractures because of say you know nutrition or yeah training too hard and yeah so there's aspects where i just look at the the gates are wide open still is what i'm saying in terms of only ever one or two guys have great races in kona so if i can be with those one or two guys that has a great race in kona then that should put me pretty close to the podium because I know I can still run 
as quick as I've ever run and I want to run quicker than I've ever run. So that means, yeah, going and doing what Patrick Lang has done and run a 230-something in, well, I've got to try and do that in Cairns and then I've got to try and do it in Kona if if I end up in Kona. Um, but, yeah, the, it's wide open still. I mean, the Norwegians are going to add a couple of serious, uh, <laughs> you know, they're going to add a couple of guys on the podium. So there's two spots gone. But, again, <laughs> there's, like I said, guys can stuff up they can get flat tires they can get broken wheels they can as as happened to um blumenfeld in the 70.3 worlds stuff happens and only ever a couple of guys have a good race on race day in kona which is insane when it's the one day that everybody is trying to peak for and you ask them how their day went and really it's just the winner that says oh it was great and i was making all the right decisions and i Whereas even if the guys are fit, they'll make the wrong decision and it doesn't take much uh, over in that environment. So it's exciting for me to still think that there's a lot of opportunity for me to, I guess, climb up that, that, that podium. You know, when, when we do those post-race interviews in Kona on the finish line, whether it be age groupers or pros, there is very few that say they had a very good day mm. uh, totally so so Pete, what well, in terms of stuff you want to get out there yourself you know um what are you doing with yourself these days and, and anything we want to get out there for for the listeners yeah well i'm building up this archive um so basically consulting with a membership so that everyone can access um my my videos and that's that's where my passion really lies that create these videos that explain all of these concepts and why it matters. And the end result is, well, how do we get more energy and be more aerobic? Because that's, if we've got better health, we've got better energy. We've got better energy, we've got better health. And so on a literal level of, you know, how do we improve the efficiency of producing ATP, which is our energy currency, the electricity in our body. And so, yeah, there's, there's a few key things and it's very simple but also very complex but that's why i've got a lot of videos in many different facets of um like i said what you're eating how you're sleeping how you're training there's dozens and dozens of of questions of oh can i do this how will that affect me and it all comes back to the same principle of well how is that affecting your aerobic capacity oxygen delivering to your energy and how you are producing energy and so it's a very you know simple concept that's the method and we just figure out where in your uh, pathways is that breaking down then we need to fix that and change that so that comes back to that the principles of training aerobically why does it matter and that's just sort of what i get into a lot but then also combine, well, why does nutrition matter for aerobic capacity and so on and so forth. So, yeah, you can just hook up and work together with a month or many months is a um, couple of consults a month and go through all the archival footage that I'm adding to every week and all the other protocols for trying to lower inflammation and improve aerobic capacity and just, like I say, just feel better and um, you know, get more out of life, whatever level that will be at, whether it's just not feeling depressed and tired or whether it's trying to perform at a at an Ironman World Championships as an age grouper um, or as a or as an elite. 
yeah, that's it. That's um, and where, where, that's where, what my passion where's, where's, is. Uh, where's the best website and or directions we need to send people to? Um, yeah, just you just look up uh, me on social media, and you can see my link tree there, or just DM me on any social medias, and um, or go to liveyourownfit.com. Which is the business my wife Jamie and I have started, but uh, it's becoming life, yeah, just L Y F life, and um, we're just sort of transferring that to the new business now, and yeah, or or just look up PeteJacobs.com and you'll see a few a few updates, not many, but the the links will be there for how to look at that um, membership program that you can sign up for. But the easiest is just to DM me on a social media platform. And that way we just have instant communication back and forth. Let's book in a free chat and I'll send you um, a couple of free uh, resources and then just see if, if it's a right fit, if I can help you uh, with your with your issues, which generally, like I said, pretty much everything comes back to the principles that I've put together, uh, those multiple facets of health and fitness you know, um, yeah, nice. I'm, I'm pretty happy with how it's, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited with how it's all come together so that I can help pretty much anybody with those issues of energy, fitness, performance, mental function, um, all of those issues that I've struggled with over the years. Um, yeah, wouldn't wish them on anybody. So I'm really happy to be able to, you know, help people and show people there's a different way. We don't need to do that. Um, it's amazing how many people yeah, I talk to that just, they think they're doing the right thing. They're going gluten-free, but now it's all just processed gluten-free stuff. And why does that matter? And, you know, all those layers of why, you know, there's so many, I just make sure that I've answered every why. And so that it's super clear why something matters for somebody to, to make that change. Well, Dave Scott did it, I think at 42, I think he got a second place at 42. So no reason why, yep. Pete, you've, cl you've, you've clicked over 40, but 40 is a new 20. So uh, hopefully, you know, in the next couple of years, we can see you cranking it back up there and uh, add to that collection of medals you've got in Kona. So look forward to Cairns. Yeah, it must only be about 10, uh, when is it? Yeah, 10 or 12 weeks yeah, away, I suppose. So. Uh, June, June 12th. So yeah. still got a little while. Awesome. Yeah. But no, great to catch up again, Pete. And I uh, love your work as always. And hopefully there's more to come in the future as well. Awesome. Thanks heaps, guys. Great to chat. All right, our team. So we've done the interview after we've done this. But yes, we don't actually know the interview, but I'm sure it was pretty great. So let's go into Wanger of the Week. We've got number 78 from last week. And who is this, John? This was courtesy of random.org. And it was The Grinder. Christine oh. McKinley. We were talking about the grinder the other day, my wife and I. Yeah. Yep, because we, I need to go to the dentist. Yeah. I'm going to oh, where are you going to go now? I'm going to grab my tooth. And one of my teeth's got, like, it's almost getting hollow. Right. So then when you eat, you've got to get a toothpick to get the bed. <laughs> That's what happens if you it's get It's a filling coming your way. <laughs> I know. And, but she's no longer working, is she? Well, she's on the West Coast. So the, the, grind, the grinder's moved over to the West Coast for a bit of a change in lifestyle for a while. Doing a bit of locuming over there. Uh, How so long has she been over there for? Oh, she came back last weekend for the Sea to Sky, did the run. She uh, could have told me and got done some work on me. Yeah. Uh, she's been over there a number of months and doing all the – I noticed in her, on her Strava feed here, she went over and did um, – she had some big runs. She's been running all the great walks on the West Coast. I think she oh, ran cool. the Paparoa the other day. Um, How far is that? It would be like 60K, something like that. Uh, yeah, I think she might oh, have done – I don't, I, don't, I don't have access to her. It's a private account. 
Okay. Uh, only good friends get the access to her right. account. Maybe. Uh, so Chrissy's longest bike ride she's ever done is 181.1 kilometres. Uh she kind of, uh, she's only got her biggest climb on here at 673 metres, which is rubbish because she's been over to France, so she's been up much bigger climbs than that. Um, and what else we got going on with Chrissy? She has... Does great work on teeth. Great, done great That's work on teeth. That's all I can teeth. contribute because I'm no longer a friend. Right. <laughs> Longest bike ride was Takaka to Murchison. Nice ride. Seven, seven hours and five minutes with 1,900 and 12 metres of climbing. When you do that climb, you've got to go over uh, the big Tark Hill, which is 16 kilometres long. So nice work. Chrissy. Chrissy. You're our winger, winger of the week. week. Okay, quiz question. Now, I've pulled up the answer, but I haven't looked yet. Okay. So we're thinking last I, the, I the, think the question is, the question is, who got third at the Hawaii Ironman when it was last on, which is 2019? I think Lucy Charles Buckley. So the winner was uh, was Anne Haug. That's yeah, pretty straightforward. Lucy was winning. Wasn't Lucy she? Charles had a big battle with someone, and I can't remember who it was. Yeah, but did she come back in the end? I Lucy think she came did. back. Maybe she did. And see, I, I was wondering if it was with Sarah. Well, I've got Crow- Lucy. Sarah, I was wondering if it was Sarah Crowley or somebody else. See, I'm struggling. I think Lucy Charles did get back to second place, but I can't for the life of me think who it was. Yeah, okay, who are you going with? I'm going to go with Sarah Crowley. John Newson, you swine! You pulled it off. Yes. I honestly did not look Because Lucy did fell not back, didn't she? And she came back and took mm. her in the last bit. Yeah. And, okay, so Anne did an 8.40. Lucy did, geez, these girls go fast. Uh, Lucy did a 8.46 and Sarah Crowley did an 8.48. Mm. So, yeah, because Lucy was winning. Yeah. Anne yes. ran, ran like a down. beast. And then, they don't have the run spits here, but, um, and then, yeah. And yeah, then Sarah Crowley got past Lucy Charles and then Lucy Charles fell back and managed to get her in. And that's right, the story was that she was allowed to get a dog if she got second or something like that. Well, well interestingly, know. you forget this, Lucy's got second three times. Mm. Yeah. Is she going to be another Andreas Rayler? Well, I don't think she is. She's so young. Yeah. You know, because Lucy Charles is only, Lucy Charles Buckley's only 28. Mm. Her peak's still in front of her. It is. You know, so I, I think she's going to win it. Yeah, Great news. That's a long term bet. Okay, John Swims here. Oh, no, actually, we've got an email here. Good old um, Andrew Mystery Man Weston. He sent us an email saying he was going to do the PRL. What's that? So, this is the longest ride on Zwift. What the hell distance is It's a long way. It's 178Ks or something like that on Zwift, and you're doing lots of just basically doing laps of this London circuit. It's about 15 kilometers long. And he just said, uh, he sent us an email he said, uh, when he was doing it, asking for some advice. He says, want to drop a quick note to follow up from your advice to me in the show before Christmas about completing the PRL full route on Swift. Thanks a lot for the advice and tips. Myself and three friends completed it yesterday, with, not without issues. Had to restart because one person missed the start. Cramping and dogs needed a walk. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's good. And no swift issues so that we were able to take uh, get our badges, unlike John in his first attempt. Your advice around taking breaks, changing clothes, pacing was all very useful. So thanks again. I love your show. I've been listening for eight years now. And although I've never done a full Ironman, I've done a few halves and to mostly good success. Uh, yeah, so it's just saying, nice work, Andrew. Yeah. Uh, that's a solid achievement. It's a long time to be on your bike indoors. It and must be, eh? Much what, how long did it take you? Oh, we had a good group, so we moved pretty quickly. I, I, I recall five hours twenty or something, something like that. It was we got through in pretty good time. What's your longest indoor session? Uh, that would be it. Yeah, yeah. You'd yeah. struggle to get me any longer than that. But I found it pretty. I found it good. But we've had, both times I've done it, it's been with a, a solid size group. Ever, look, I know you're typing away when you're doing your Zwift. 
You know, you might message to other people. Have you ever heard a headset? Uh, no, but a lot of people do that. Do and they? Then they communicate uh, via Discord when they do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool. We tried that once or twice, but it wasn't my cup of tea. You hear people panting away, it's like, and then people forget to mute and uh, you just, shut up! And then they... they t- someone's yeah. walking their dog. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like so. Okay, what did you do in your swim set? Jod's swim set this morning, 400 warm-up, doing 75 freestyle, 25 backstroke. Then we did 300, 25 kick, 25 drill, 25 freestyle, just repeating that cycle through. Uh, nine 100s, descend one to three, four to six, seven to nine. So that's sort of steady, moderate, hard, steady, moderate, hard, steady, moderate, hard, with 10 seconds rest between each one. 600 steady. And then we did some sprints, 825 sprints, where we're getting sort of 20 to 25 seconds rest. So you get, when you're doing sprints, you've got to have a good amount of rest to, so you can actually do them properly. Yeah. I mean, there's two ways of doing it. You can do sprints and have short rest and try to get the, the, the adaptation from that. But generally, when you're doing sprints, you want to have good rest so you can hit each one really hard. 100 easy and then a 400 TT. So um, sometimes people don't look all the way down the program. They just sort of focus on what they're doing at the time and then they get hit with something like that at the end. Uh, thankfully... Well, there's one or two that didn't look too far down the program today. Uh, 400 TT and then uh, warm down. That was it. Good stuff. Okay, then. So uh, let's say a big thank you to our patrons. John, I'm going to knock you out. I'm going to knock you Reardon. out. Uh, we've got Ryan, the Ruthless Smith. And Gavin, the Big Brew Duffy. If you want to become a sponsor or a patron of the show, you can go to www. I am talk.me, go through the process. You can also get the show emailed to you at the bottom of the page here. Once I'm coaching, coachsawnewsome.com. My podcast, you know, I was telling you I was doing that CEO guy. For mm-hmm. the, well, I interviewed him on my podcast. Mm-hmm. And awesome interview. This guy is high level. And just, it was really interesting understanding his foundation around how he approaches life. Mm-hmm. If you want to listen, if you just love listening to high achievers and way, the way they approach things, Highly recommend. I released it yesterday. Check out the Bevan James Oil show if you're not already listening to it. Um, really enjoyed the interview, and I just think there's some really cool insight in there. Uh, other content such as cool websites, age group of the week, other feedback, flick it through to us at iamtalkpodcast.gmail.com. What you got, Scott, John? Um, I am supposed to, well, I am going up to New Plymouth this weekend to go to the national championships with little Tommy, and I'm going to be re- participating as well myself, but oh. I will just be cruising it because my hamstring's on the men. Good old uh, the Colonel Kylie Cox yep. got me on so the, we're running got, the other day. Yep, she's got those elbows in, is she? Uh, <laughs> she was going up here, I didn't know some out, so she yep. must have listened. She's, she's listening, she's yep. working on it. Uh, so going up to do that, but yeah, my hamstring's, it's on the it's on the men. I'm back doing some, some light running, uh, so I'll do the event, but just be cruising the run. Here's a question for you, John. Mm. Do you stop and talk? On the run? Well, because I was doing a run, I was running back down the hill to go home. Kylie and her brother Aaron, who I know Aaron really well, he's a lovely guy, um, they were heading up towards us and Kylie just ran past. Yeah. <laughs> Kylie was like, I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. Aaron did the kind of slight pause. Yeah. And then I kind of, oh, 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 and I ran on. Yeah. What do you do? Generally, just wave, how you doing? Yeah. You don't stop? <laughs> that comes as no surprise to most people, I imagine. <laughs> I did not to stop. <laughs> the worst was I was running down the road, around the around the river. So when Tyler Tyler lived in New Zealand, um, when she was with her, at her mum's house, she lived kind of just about five minutes from where I was in Saint Martin's. Mm-hmm. One day I'm running around the river and I saw Tyler. Hey, babe! And she ran past. Her. <laughs> she said she felt a bit stinky. Oh, <laughs> her dad ran past. Her. <laughs> so it probably wasn't my sharpest effort. Uh, yeah. So there you go. What's happening in your world, Bevan? Well, John. 
I tell you what, you know, a few episodes ago, I talked about that third person technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys, if you haven't read the book, read the bloody book. My band played on Saturday night. The album's probably six weeks away. We're, we're pushing to the end. Sorry, just back it up a little bit. Um, it's interesting you mentioned that because I was watching one of those Super League um, clips the other day, yep. the, the documentaries, and Katie Zaveras, I think it was on that. She was doing it and she was doing it the whole, she had a race, she wrote out a whole race plan. Oh. Katie will feel strong in the swim. Yeah. Katie will do this. Katie will do that. And, and, and yeah. Well, it was really interesting. So uh, the albums come close. And so I gave it to like two groups of friends or three groups of friends. And we just, we, we were planning to go out that night anyway. And then the band came along. So I gave them the album. It's the first time people I know have watched us live. Mm-hmm. And it's the first time they know our music as well because I kind of gave the, the ninety percent done album. Turn up to the venue, and I thought it was going to be dead because COVID, mm. live mm. live music, you know, like it's, it's thought to be dead. But it was chocker, chocker nice. with people, and then I had people I know in front of me while I'm doing it as well. So I'm feeling nervous mm. as I'm doing it. Went backstage, did that third person technique. I went in. I just did. Bevan's in a place right now. He's feeling a little bit nervous about something that's really important to him. Blah 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 blah. I talked myself through it. Got on stage now. I'm far from where I want to be as a musician, but I played the best I've ever played. Nice. Both as a performer, because I'm trying to have a stage presence, and as in musically with my instrument. And um, and like normally what happens is the first three songs I feel really nervous, mm-hmm. and then as time progresses, I kind of get into it, and by the second half I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, this set here, the first song, probably the first 30 seconds, I felt a little bit kind of, just had the kind of beginner nerves, but then from that moment forward I was fine. And I would have thought, and even as we're sitting at dinner, I'm thinking, shit, I'm feeling real nervous because I'm going to be going out mm. with these, you know. So go back and listen to that episode or if not, read that book, Chatter, because I'm using it so much and I just think it's such a powerful tool. So check it out. We're going to wrap it up, go do our interview. Okay, we've got Pete Jacobs. Oh, we've already done it. Yeah, we've done it. <laughs> 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 yes, Pete, you've listened to it earlier. Let's wrap it up. I'm Russ. I'm Mendo. Train hard. Train smart. Kick off.